Let's ask God to help us uh, with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we do pray uh, today you would grant us to hear your word as your word uh, so that we will grow in knowledge of you and of what pleases you. And gracious Father, we pray that you would so work in us that we would delight to know you and we would want to do what pleases you. Help me now to speak your word truthfully and clearly and help us to understand it and to receive it with thankful faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Ezekiel's a book like uh, no other. It is extreme. Uh, whether you'll feel that in the language and imagery the prophet uses, which is sometimes sexual and often very confronting, or whether you'll feel that as you see uh, Ezekiel acting out his ministry, say acting out the privations of the siege of Jerusalem by eating rationed mixed grain cooked on cow dung for 390 days, whoa, or whether it's seen in the scrupulous dating of his prophecies or the relentless focus on judgment, the judgment of Jerusalem in the first 33 chapters, or in the grandeur of Ezekiel's vision of the future given from chapter 34 on, uh, Ezekiel as a book is extreme and intense. And it's also a big book, 48 chapters, so we'll actually be dealing with it in selected large chunks over about 13 weeks and today we're going to start with a large chunk chapters 1 to 3 to see the lengths the Lord goes to to ensure that his word is heard through his human messenger Ezekiel. God speaks, he's the living God and he is determined his word is heard. He wants his hearers, the hearers of his messengers to know they have heard his word whether they believe it or not. For it's through his word that the Lord both judges and saves and through his word he will vindicate his holy name, bring all to see by the fulfilment of his word in history that he is the God he says he is, the only God. Uh, we're going to uh, start by meeting the human messenger. Uh, the Lord has uh, chosen to bring his words to the exiles in the area around Babylon. We're going to start by meeting Ezekiel. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Chiba Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Chiba Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. Uh, we meet Ezekiel at the beginning of the book only because God met Ezekiel first, giving him visions and placing his strong hand upon him. Ezekiel was not looking for God, but God was looking for Ezekiel. And we need to remember that because it's easy as you read through the book to become fascinated with Ezekiel's experiences, with thinking about what it would be like to be called on to have an obedience like Ezekiel's. That has a place, but those experiences themselves are signs, signs given to communicate and reinforce the word, the message the Lord God has called Ezekiel to speak. So this book is not about Ezekiel. 
It's about the message God speaks through Ezekiel. But the brief introduction in verses 1 to 3 orients us to the context in which the Lord speaks his word to Ezekiel's circumstances and those of his listeners. We learn there that Ezekiel's a Jew and a priest living amongst the exiles by the Chiba Canal. Now that brief phrase says a lot about the circumstances of the people he's addressing. You see, Ezekiel is living amongst and as one of the people who have been deported, exiled from Jerusalem, caught up in the complicated relationship between King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and successive kings of Judah. And you can read about that in 2 Kings 23 to 25 and I have put a timeline of the events uh, pertaining to that relationship on the web. Now, Ezekiel was deported from Jerusalem in 597 BC when King Jehoiachin had surrendered himself to Nebuchadnezzar and gone himself into exile. And Ezekiel and the other exiles have been relocated to the Chiba Canal, which we're told is in the land of the Chaldeans, that is, the land of the Babylonians now in modern Iraq. Chaldean is an ethnic term and Babylon was the principal city of the Chaldeans. The Chiba Canal is one of a network of canals that irrigates the plain, well, that did irrigate the plain between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. And so Ezekiel and his band are not in Babylon like Daniel, No, they've been relocated to the countryside, to a town we learn in 3.15 called Tel Abib, which is to the southeast of Babylon, near Nippur. And Ezekiel here gives us a date for the beginning of his ministry. He gives us two dates, in fact. Firstly, verse 1, the 30th year in the fourth month on the fifth day of the month. This first date is thought to be a personal date, giving Ezekiel's age. It's actually a measure of Ezekiel's loss. For as a priest, Ezekiel would have entered into temple service in his 30th year. But the next date, telling us his prophesying commenced on the fifth day of the fourth month in the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, that is 593 BC, is the public dating system Ezekiel will use repeatedly throughout his book. He'll give the dates for several of his prophecies, dates that allow us to relate what he says to events happening in his world to events particularly happening in Judah. More importantly, those dates will show that Ezekiel's prophecies were given before the events that fulfilled them, show that it is the Lord's will and purpose announced beforehand by his prophet that is accomplished in the world. Those dated prophecies become a record revealing that the Lord rules and his word is sure and true. Commencing his ministry in that fifth year, 593 BC, means that Ezekiel begins speaking when Jerusalem has not yet been destroyed. It is still standing and there's still a Jewish population in Judea. And that was important Uh, to the exiles. Uh, Many of his fellow exiles still had relatives in Jerusalem and the focus of their hope was on returning to Jerusalem. And as exiles, they were dislocated and discouraged and their understanding of God had been challenged. For many of the Jews, 
the Lord had been thought of as a, a local, national God, like the gods of the surrounding nations, a God tied to a people and a place, a God whose commitment to Jerusalem and his temple could be taken for granted, regardless of their behaviour. It was the Lord's job, thought them, they thought, to defend them come what may. <coughs> now, that view of the Lord as a, a national deity, inseparable from his people, set them up for a false hope and a false despair. A false hope that the Lord would always defend Jerusalem, that would never be destroyed. A false despair that now in a foreign country, they, the exiles, were away from the Lord, outside his care and control, that they were finished as his people could expect no good from him. In fact, many were probably tempted to think that Marduk, the god of the victorious Babylonians, was stronger, especially in Babylon, that they were tempted to start worshipping the god of their conquerors. Now, 593 BC may be a long time ago, <coughs> but that false hope and false despair is something we know. Many for whom Christianity was the faith of their forefathers, the faith of their culture, live with a false hope that God will never judge, that he'll look after people, whatever we do, and whether we listen to him or not, because it's his job to forgive, a false hope. And they also live with a false despair. They see that the Christian faith has lost its place, that somehow... <coughs> God has been driven away, fallen to the idols of our age, materialism and secularism, and we've somehow in our society moved beyond his help. And we're left in an uncaring universe with purposeless lives, with no hope outside of ourselves and our own abilities and possibilities. A false despair. But despair especially for the poor and the mortal. And that is us all. That false hope and false despair can infect even our thinking as believers. What can counter that false hope and false despair then as now? Only the word of the Lord. Only the word of the Lord can bring them and us to know the Lord as he is, the only true God, the Lord of heaven and earth, righteous and faithful the just judge of all the earth who shows no partiality and judges the sins of his people, the sins of all people. Oh yes, and the almighty God, the God of steadfast love who could give the remnant of a destroyed nation, a dead nation, hope when all human hope had gone. The almighty God who can give hope to those dead in their sins. Only the word of the Lord can counter, and can counter false hope and false despair. So on the Chiba Canal, living amongst the exiles, the Lord calls Ezekiel into his service as his messenger, his prophet, first by giving Ezekiel a vision of what Ezekiel calls the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, and then by speaking to him, commissioning him as his prophet. Now, to read chapter 1 is 
to see that Ezekiel is struggling to convey what he's seen. You read it, and the translation smooths it out a bit, but it's actually very choppy, a bit repetitive. And as you heard, there are lots of likes and likenesses in the description. Oh, he speaks of the likeness of four living creatures. Their appearance was like, oh, the wheels were like the gleaming of beryl, the same likeness. He speaks of the likeness of an expanse. And when you get to verses 26 to 28, the likes and the likenesses and the as it was are all piled on above the expanse, above their heads. There was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness of a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal like the appearance of fire. Oh, like the appearance of the bow that's in the cloud, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. (laughs) Ezekiel is trying to describe what he sees by analogy. He's trying to draw an association between what he's seeing, which is outside his and all our experience. He's trying to draw an association between that and some familiar part of his and our experience. It's like and like and like. And his conclusion, verse 28b, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So Ezekiel doesn't say he saw the Lord. He doesn't say he saw even the glory of the Lord. He sees the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Yet it is an awesome, overwhelming display of brightness and light and might. Now, the vision, as you saw, is organised in three parts. So firstly, the living creatures. (coughs) Now, these verses 5 to 14, these are what are called composite creatures, you know, with elements from the human, from the angelic, with wings, oh, feet like calves, powerful creatures. Now, these composite creatures were not as unfamiliar to first hearers who saw similar kinds of composite creatures in sculpture and art all around them. And that's a, a, a statue from the palace of an Assyrian king, Ashurbanipal. And he speaks of the faces of these creatures. Uh, the faith, their faces, you know, a human face, the face of a lion, the face of an ox, the face of an eagle tell you that these creatures embody all that is royal and dignified in creation. For the faces of the human, the lion, the ox and the eagle are faces of creatures which in Ezekiel's day and culture were associated with rule, strength, courage, swiftness, nobility, stateliness, fertility. The living creatures and then the wheels. Their magnificence was stressed in verses 6 to 18. But actually what is emphasised is their freedom of movement, that they move in harmony with the living creatures. When they went, verse 17, they went in any of the four directions without turning as they went. Or verse 20, wherever the Spirit wanted to go, they went and the wheels rose along with them for the Spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. You see, the wheels of this chariot travel without hindrance wherever the Spirit wills. And then, of course, we have a vision of 
what is borne by the chariot, the throne over the heads of the living creatures. Above the expanse, verse 26, over their heads there was the likeness of a throne. The expanse or the firmament actually is a boundary. It represents a boundary between heaven and earth, creature and creator. And here in these verses we get an impression of difference, a likeness of a ruler on a likeness of a throne, but it's all engulfed in light and fire and surrounded by light of many hues and actually it exceeds description. Now, we could spend a lot of time on the details, but it's better to ask, what does this vision of God who will address, what does this vision convey of the God who will address Ezekiel? For what Ezekiel sees is given to support what Ezekiel hears. Well, firstly, it conveys that the Lord is glorious. You cannot see even the appearance of the likeness of his glory without being overwhelmed. And it tells us the Lord is sovereign. He is seated on his throne. He rules in mighty power. The Lord, four living creatures, (coughs) embodying in their faces all created majesty and power, serve him. Oh, and the Lord is holy separate from all creation, transcendent. He rides above all creation. He's above the expanse and that is a boundary creatures cannot cross. The Lord is free. He goes wherever he wills without interruption. And it's he, his spirit, who sustains the movement, supports the throne, not the living creatures and the wheels. Oh, and this vision of a chariot of a throne on wheels tells us that the Lord is king everywhere he's king not just in Jerusalem he's king by the Chebar canal his is a mobile throne not a static one bolted down in the temple in Jerusalem everywhere he comes he comes as king and he goes wherever he wills and coming in might and power The Lord is able to execute his judgments anywhere. Fire is associated with judgment and this is a fiery coming. Well, having given Ezekiel this vision, the glorious Lord then lifts Ezekiel up by his spirit so that he can speak with Ezekiel, commission him as his messenger, his prophet to the exiles of Israel. And it's clear that the initiative and origin of Ezekiel's ministry is with the Lord. Ezekiel 2, 3, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel. Repeat it in verse 4, I send you. And again, chapter 3, verse 4, Ezekiel will go because he is sent. And he is sent to speak the word of the Lord. There's no doubt that what Ezekiel says comes from God. Verse 4, I send you to them and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God. This is what the sovereign Lord says. That's actually repeated twice more, 3.7 and 3.27. You see, the words that come out of Ezekiel's mouth are now written down for us are the words of God. That is emphasised. 2.7, 
you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear. 3.10, Son of man, all my words that I shall speak to you, receive in your heart and hear with your ears and go to the exiles of your people and speak to them and say, thus says the Lord God. Now that commissioning to speak the word of the Lord is symbolised in eating the scroll that the Lord proffers to Ezekiel in chapters 2, 8 to 3, 3. There the Lord holds out a scroll to him, written front and back with words of lamentation and mourning and woe. And the Lord says to him, Son of man, eat whatever you find here, eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. Eat and speak. The message is to be received, accepted and not resisted by Ezekiel. Ezekiel has to be distinct from his contemporaries. He has to model reception of the word of the Lord, embody trust in and obedience to the word of the Lord. Eating tells him that this word is to be internalised, made his own. And we see that in that believing obedience, he finds the word sweet, even though it is a message of lamentation, mourning and woe. The Lord is determined that Ezekiel speak his word. And so as part of the commissioning, the Lord preserves Ezekiel for the reception that he will receive from this people, a rebellious people. He says three seven that they have stubborn Heads and hard hearts, hard heads and stubborn hearts. That, that They won't want to think about what Ezekiel says and they won't want to change. But in response to their hardness, the Lord says that like emery harder than flint have I made your forehead, fear not nor be dismayed. The Lord equips Ezekiel for this ministry. Now, why this vision and commission? Why this call of Ezekiel? It's so that people will hear, thus says the Lord. So that firstly, the people of Ezekiel's community there outside Israel will know that they have been addressed by the Lord. And secondly, so that we will know that in Ezekiel's words, we are being addressed by the Lord. In these words, we are listening to God. We can come to know God, hear his warning and his promise. Now, we may find the content of what God says difficult to hear, especially when it rebukes our sin, declares judgment on our rebellion. But we should recognise that in itself, to hear the living God, to hear the word of the one who knows all things and can do all he says, and so to have a word that is true and sure in a world of competing and conflicting opinions is a great privilege, a great grace. I mean, we have human authorities, don't we? We've been hearing a lot from them these days, authorities on disease transmission, authorities on epidemiology. And great and costly decisions are being made on the basis of their authority. Now, we hope they're good. But what we see with human knowledge, what we're experiencing is that there is always doubt attached to their words, always a shadow of uncertainty surrounding their pronouncements, that there may even be alternate authorities with slightly differing views. 
and with human knowledge, human authority, it will always be so, won't they? Because no human knows everything. No human knows the future. No human can control the future, but the Lord knows everything. And as he will demonstrate, he can speak with authority on the future because in his almighty power, he brings about what he has said will happen. So his word is like no other, a word which should be entirely trusted. It is a privilege to hear God speak, whether what he says suits us or not. And that privilege comes to us, is given to us at a cost to the Lord's messengers. For the Lord makes it clear, chapter 3, 16 following, that speaking his word to a rebellious people requires both faithfulness and suffering. 3.17 I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, That wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. A city watchman would stand on the wall or in a tower to warn the people of a city of impending danger so that they could get ready to meet it or take steps to avoid it, arm themselves or flee to safety. What was required of those watchmen was that they should stay at their post, stay alert and sound the warning when danger threatened. What God is saying he requires of Ezekiel, what he will hold Ezekiel responsible for, is sounding the warning. When Ezekiel hears a word from my mouth, verse 17, he is to transmit it faithfully, including words that warn of God's judgment on sin, you shall surely die. He's to transmit it faithfully no matter what kind of reception he anticipates or gets. It may not be effective in turning someone away from sin, but Ezekiel is responsible to speak it. He must be faithful in conveying the word of the Lord. And the Lord makes clear that faithfully conveying his word to a rebellious people will involve suffering. Suffering so that they know, whether they believe it or not, that the word spoken is the word of God. Ezekiel 3 verse 24. Go, shut yourself within your house, and you, O son of man, behold, cords will be placed upon you, and you shall be bound with them so that you cannot go out amongst the people. Firstly, there's the suffering of confinement, whether self-imposed or imposed by others, and uh, we know how difficult confinement can be. Ezekiel's movements are to be restricted. Uh, We're not sure how long this was to last, this binding, because later we see Ezekiel performing physical signs like building a model of the besieged Jerusalem. But like his speaking, it would appear that Ezekiel is not free in his movements. They were to be controlled to support the word he would speak. And then there is the suffering of being dumb. Verse 26, I will make your tongue... Cling to the roof of your mouth so that you shall be mute and unable to reprove them, for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, 
He who will hear, let him hear, and he who will refuse to hear, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. You see that God says to Ezekiel that he will from that time be mute. He will only be able to speak when the Lord speaks to him, verse 27. When the Lord opens his mouth to speak the Lord's word to say, thus says the Lord. (coughs) And we know that this was to last until the fall of Jerusalem, about seven years. And Ezekiel's role is to be limited in function. He will be unable to reprove them or unable to intercede for them, unable to influence decisions and behaviour beyond the word God gave him to speak. Now, what's the net effect of these limitations which cause such hardship to Ezekiel? Well, it makes it clear to his fellow exiles that Ezekiel is a man under the control of the Spirit of God and that they would know that when he spoke, It was the word of the Lord and only the word of the Lord that came from his mouth. So they wouldn't be able to dismiss what Ezekiel said, the word of judgment that they did not want to hear as if it came from his own imagination or had its origin in his personal feelings. Nor could they confuse the gracious word God would speak through Ezekiel as an expression of Ezekiel's own wishes. And they wouldn't be able to relate to Ezekiel as some kind of intercessor, someone who could negotiate with God on their behalf, bargain with God. No. Through this suffering, all his audience could do is hear the word of God and decide how they would respond to the God who had spoken. In chapters 1 to 3, we hear of the vision God gave Ezekiel and Ezekiel's commissioning, hear of the demand for faithfulness and the necessity of suffering on the part of God's messenger. We see the Lord has gone to great lengths to to ensure that we know Ezekiel is speaking the Lord's word and only his word and all the word that the Lord gives to Ezekiel. Whether Ezekiel is speaking insistently of judgment, as he does in chapters 1 to 3, 33, or of an extravagant salvation, as he does in verses, chapters 34 to 38, we know Ezekiel is speaking the word of the Lord. When we hear Ezekiel speaking a word that in many ways was unthinkable to his first hearers, a word of judgment that Jerusalem would be destroyed, a word of salvation, That is still unthinkable to many today. God has made sure through this call that we know that it is his word and that he is the God who can both speak and do what we will find unthinkable. Now, why this determination that his human messenger be known to speak his word and only his word? Well, we'll see that answer throughout the book in a phrase that's repeated in one form or another more than 72 times. And the phrase is this, and they shall know that I am the Lord. That phrase is used repeatedly when speaking of the fulfilment of the prophecies of judgment. Though they escape from the fire, the fire shall yet consume them, and you will know that I am the Lord. And it's used repeatedly when speaking of the fulfilment of prophecies of salvation, 
And you shall know that I am the Lord when I bring you into the land of Israel. You shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake and not according to your evil ways. Through this word that he commissions Ezekiel to speak, the Lord will vindicate his holy name. When in both judgment and salvation, people see him acting in faithfulness to his word, seeing his word fulfilled, they will know that he is the God he says he is. The Lord, the great I am, the ruler of heaven and earth, just and righteous, merciful and gracious, always faithful to his covenant. They will know he is the God who in his sovereign freedom, his determination to be the God he is, well, he's free to do what is unthinkable to us. Through his determination that Ezekiel speak his word, the Lord will give us a glimpse of his glory more as we see his unthinkable word of judgment proven true. That word that Israel and we do not want to hear. The Lord will give us confidence that the unthinkable word of salvation will also prove true. In bringing us to know he's the Lord, he will give us hope beyond the despair of death. It's for the sake of his holy name, so that we will know he is the Lord, that the Lord is determined that his word be heard, heard whether it is believed or not. You see, the Lord knows Israel is hard-hearted, stubborn in their rebellious rejection of his word. But the Lord insists that his word be spoken whether they hear or refuse to hear. 2, 7, 3, 11, 3, 27. He repeats it. You see, the Lord doesn't think it a waste of time to speak to stubborn people, nor does he think his word needs to be vindicated by popular opinion. The Lord doesn't consult with anybody but himself in declaring what he will do, in speaking his judgments and promises. And the problem with people's reception of the word won't be in its clarity. As we'll see, Ezekiel is shockingly, confrontingly clear. He's insistent, attention-grabbing, repetitive. The Lord ensures there's no deficiency in making his word known. The problem is in the reception, in the refusal to hear, in their determination not to hear a word that conflicts with what they want to believe. Uh, the house of Israel, 3.7, he says, will not be willing to listen to you, Ezekiel, for they are not willing to listen to me. The problem is not in the message, but in our hearts, in our pre-existing rejection of the Lord. You see, like all Adam's children, like us, Ezekiel's first hearers do not want to hear a word that challenges our sovereignty our rule over our own lives. They don't want to hear the word of the true ruler of creation. Well, the living God speaks. He's determined that his word be heard even by rebellious people and he will vindicate himself through his word. He will make himself known through the fulfilment of his word. Because the living God speaks, knowing God is not a matter of speculating, of imagining what God is like or what God can or cannot do. It's a matter of listening. Listening to a word we may not always want to hear. 
For the Lord has sovereign freedom to say and to do whatever he wills. He's unconstrained by our expectations or acceptance, by what we would want him to be like or to do. He has freedom to be the God he declares himself to be. And because of that, we can only know him as he speaks. And the living God has spoken. He's spoken by his prophets very clearly by Ezekiel. The whole purpose of these first three chapters is that we would know Ezekiel is speaking his word even when it shocks and it will shock. But he's not only spoken to us by his prophets, has he? As the author of Hebrews says, Oh, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. God is so determined that his word be heard in a world where from Adam his word is rejected, that he has spoken to us by his Son, whether he is believed or not. The Son who faithfully conveyed the word of God to us, for his word is the word of God. The Son who suffered to bring God's word to us, to guarantee to us the truth of the message he speaks. Think of the limitations Jesus, the Son, accepted to humble himself, to take on our humanity. Think of his suffering on the cross to rise again on the third day, just as he said, so that we would see that every promise of God finds their yes, their fulfilment in him. And like Ezekiel, it is an unthinkable word that the Son speaks to us, a word of certain judgment for sinners who will not repent. And there are references there in the outline. A word of certain judgment and a word of salvation, but not for the righteous, but for sinners who repent. And through the word the Son speaks and fulfills, he brings the whole world to know that the God of Israel is the Lord, the only God, the only judge and saviour of all. God has spoken. What should, she, what should we do with his word? The word spoken to us through the prophets, the word spoken to us by his son. We should receive it with grateful fear, humbling ourselves to believe it, to conform our thinking and acting to what the Lord says, conforming our expectations of what God will do to what he has said. In fact, we should be terrified not to believe it, all of it, For whether we approve or not, the word God speaks is the word of God, transcendent, holy, almighty, and it will be proved true. We should be terrified not to believe it, and we should be terrified to alter it or to suggest to people that they can disregard it. And when we share it, share the word of God by sharing the gospel of God that calls every one of us to repent and turn in faith to Jesus who has died for our sins and risen again. We should be sharing that as the word of the God who speaks, not as an opinion, not as one possibility amongst many as to what God is like or will do, not as a piece of life advice that people can take or leave, 
whether people want to hear it or not, when you share the gospel, you are saying, thus says the Lord. And people should know that they have heard the word of God that declares a certain judgment and a certain salvation. And like Ezekiel and our Lord, oh yes, know that to speak that word amongst the people who do not want to hear it because they do not want to hear God will be to suffer. But that word alone will bring them to know the true and living God and save them from false hope and false despair by giving a true and eternal hope. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, the book of Ezekiel is a strange book and a big book. But we thank you that you have shown us that it is your word. Help us to hear your word. To believe that the message you speak through your messenger is the word of the living God. Help us to come to know you through believing that word. And we pray in your mercy. Help us to come to a true and sure hope a hope of a new heart and resurrection through believing the word that you speak through your prophet Ezekiel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.